everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld. Welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review Podcast. And I've got a very old friend. He's not so old, but I've known him for a long time, probably about 15 years or so. Uh, Dirk Niemeyer. Hi, Dirk. Hey, Lou. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful as well. Excellent. You know, Dirk is one of those people that I find in the UX world who is kind of full of surprises Though, um, if you've been in the industry as long as we have, the fact that you even got into UX in the first place was a surprise. So I guess it's not about the design work. It's about interesting twists and turns in our careers that happen to include UX. And um, I think you're still doing a lot of things related to design, Dirk. Um, but let me just go ahead and, and uh, uh, fill in a little bit of background for people listening in. Uh, when I first... Uh, ran into you, I remember uh, you were pitching, and you were at Thread, which was in Toledo, Ohio, and you were pitching a client of mine, the NCAA, and uh, I was sitting in the room and evaluating you guys and all the other companies that were coming in to pitch for NCAA, and uh, you really stood out as someone who um, seemed to really love what he was doing. Uh, not everyone is happy in the setting of the pitch, especially if they're a designer, that's like the last thing they want to do. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. What, what the hell was, what was your deal? Why were you so happy to be pitching? Oh, I, you know, I love, I love design. I, you know, it used to be yeah, when I was younger, when I would give a talk, I would say, um, I'm so happy to be here because this is uh, one of the, my three favorite things in the world to do. I, I love public speaking and that doesn't mean I'm a masochist. I, I just really enjoy this. The second thing I love is design. And the third thing I love is lovemaking. So that would always get people right. at the start of a talk. Um, but I, I love creating, you know, I love to, to look at the world, look at problems and, and, and work on, work on solutions. And I especially like to work on solutions that manifest that, that are, are concrete and, and happen. So design is a happy space for me. Well, and that happiness is something I've always noticed about you, and it actually was really important for me when we actually started collaborating. What Dirk and I and a few other people like uh, Sean Van Tyne and John Sheridan and Dave Maloof, and Whitney Cuisenberry, and I'm sure I'm forgetting a bunch of other people, uh, Richard Anderson, um, Mark Reddick, um, what we were working on, on and off for a good eight years, was a volunteer effort to help knit together the various tribes that were fitting themselves under the UX umbrella. And that was called the User Experience Network. And uh, or we called it UXNet for short. And what we were trying to do, and this is going back to, I think we probably started this in 2003 or four, so five maybe. Um, we were um, seeing a couple things that we thought needed a little bit of help from a, a neutral bunch of volunteers. Namely, uh, at the professional association level, the STCs and the IAIs and the, the interaction, the IXDAs and et cetera, et cetera, the UPAs were, were doing things like um, scheduling their annual conferences at the same time, which is just stupid because there is increasingly a chance that someone who is interested in one might actually get something out of another conference. And uh, we were really about kind of trying to tear down those, those walls between the disciplines and get them to at least know about each other and support each other and not see the uh, members or potential members out there as a zero-sum game. That was one effort we were working on. And then the other effort was more at a grassroots level. We were trying to get um, uh, support the people who do the heroes work of pulling together local communities across those different uh, tribes. So, you know, 
Joe Schmo does his happy hour for different types of UX people in some town, and uh, he makes contacts and inroads with technical writers and information architects and usability engineers and graphic designers, and they start getting together and having a great time and really learning from each other and even having local events. And then Joe Schmo gets a job in another town and has to move. What happens to that network? Mm-hmm. And so we try to create infrastructure in the pre-meetup days to support people like that so that they could do things like have more success locally, but also hand it off to the next person. And um, so here's where Dirk comes back in as a happy person. Uh, I look back on that as a failure because we didn't create this movement that like still exists today. And we had a lot of volunteers doing great things, but it was really hard to sustain anything beyond uh, uh, you know cycles of a few months because volunteers are volunteers. You know, Dirk, last time we spoke about this, you had such a positive spin. Why don't you tell us what that positive spin on the U.S. <laughs> Uh, initiative was. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, the, the real wonderful success of UXNet were the local groups, and, and there were over a hundred of them, and they were they weren't driven by us. I mean, we you know we 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 sort of nominally organized, but it was driven by these wonderful, curious, passionate, excited people who had discovered um, this thing UX or had been involved with it for for a long time in some cases, who made these local groups happen and. To, to me, the, the the success of it is even though UXNet went away, those local groups, um, for the most part, still exist. They are calling themselves, you know, an IXDA group or um, some some other. They have some other moniker at this point, but that that infrastructure, that global infrastructure, that um, you know, stretched to six continents and mm-hmm. and all these different countries, is is very much still in place. So, you know, the, from sort of a strategic level of trying to organize the different disciplines and, and do some other things. You could say, well, we didn't, we, we didn't do that. I think, you know, we were, we were early and I think a lot of those organizations were young and trying to find their place. And so maybe, maybe the moment wasn't right. Maybe the mission wasn't right. I'm not sure. But um, the, our biggest project always was that local group from the standpoint of what I think we spent most mm-hmm. of our time on. We and gave up was- very quickly on the professional associations which, yeah. by the way, isn't surprising because they have a very old business model that isn't that relevant today. But that's another story. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. But so so the bottom line is, I, I think um, the work that we did allowed uh, as user experience blew up, sort of post iPhone, as as mobile became a thing and UX became a more mainstream thing. There was already all of this infrastructure in place, much of much of which I think we were important in getting in place. Um, that made a lot of people's lives easier and created communities uh, for people to just fall right into. So I, I, I'm, I'm very, um, I, I try. I, pride is not one of my favorite things, but I'm, I'm very proud of of what we did there. I think, I think it was meaningful. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I need a little shot of um, positivity from time to time. Um, you know, I mean, uh, maybe my expectations were too high. Maybe I thought we would be, you know, carried on people's shoulders as UXNet, you know, uh, uh, had its one millionth member joint or something. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the truth of the matter is that, uh, there, there has been some interesting changes uh, with younger people entering the field, a field that's more mature. And I think this is a really good thing. So I, I tend to, like, have a little bit of generational suspicion uh, of the millennials, as, as someone who found his way, like you, into UX 
by hook or by crook, by seeing gaps that need to be filled, not really knowing what we were doing, but just sort of making it up as we go along. That doesn't really work today, and a lot of people are going into the field because it's like a good paying job, and they got student loans to deal with and so forth. That said, the thing that I, I think is really different and better today is that when you and I started out, people had these disciplinary homes they came from. It might have been, like in my case, library science, or it might have been you know, industrial design or whatever it was. And those traditional disciplines, they come with an academic grounding, and they have certain academic programs that produce the pr practitioners. The, those practitioners take certain classes uh, or took them, and they didn't take courses in other departments, not typically. They weren't encouraged to necessarily. Uh, and they read certain magazines and journals and books. And then they, uh, they got out of those programs and got certain jobs in certain types of departments and certain types of companies. And they went to certain types of conferences. They didn't go to other conferences. And that was pretty much it. You didn't really have this cross-pollination. That was really what I thought was so exciting when UX first started to really grab people's consciousness. You know, you look at today and you look at people who are starting off as, you know, whether they realize it or not, the people, the millennials, are, th are natural synthesizers. They may not have the depth in any of those specific established disciplines, but they're post-tribal. They don't give a crap. They're just like, you know... Whatever. I mean, like, I, I remember Lou Grabluski is one of those people, and he's not a millennial, but he's certainly younger than I am. When I first started working with him, I was so impressed that, you know, he knew so much about areas like graphic design and so much about areas like usability testing. And he didn't really care about, you know, what tribe he was part of. He just wanted to, to do good work and put those things together in really powerful ways. So... Yeah, I think there's been some interesting change in the field. You know, meanwhile, there's people like you and me who are sort of like, well, all right, well, what, what's the next interesting thing we're going to be doing? Now, every time I check in with you, every couple of years, you're doing something pretty amazing. I mean, you know, yes, you've got Involution Studios, by the way, that's goinvo.com, and uh, you're the co-founder of that. Uh, and that's doing some really interesting work. I, I think you guys do a lot with the healthcare industry. But, you know, then you're also, like, going to North Korea. What <laughs> I mean, like, you, you scared me, Dirk. I thought you were, like, going to disappear and we'd never hear from you again. What was that about, and how does that fit your narrative? Yeah, you know, so so my narrative, I mean, I'm, I'm really doing three things right now. I mean, one is I'm, you know, I, I, we sort of use the word chairman. Um, it's, we're trying to figure out what's the word for the old guy who doesn't contribute much. But um, I'm, you know, I'm in a much more executive role. They call that at, a Rosenfeld. <laughs> well, hey, something else you and I have in common. Um, but, you know, so that's really Involution now. My role is much more strategic. It's really part time. Um, Involution is doing awesome work, but it's it's due to Johan Sonin and, and John Follett and the great team. You know, it has nothing to do with me at this point. Um, I, I contribute, but it's in it's in ways that are sort mm -hmm. of. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm secondary. The, the credit all goes to other people now. Um, the other thing that I've been doing for some time is um, game design. So I've been designing um, tabletop games. I've designed, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 um, games over the last six or seven years. And that's something that was really strictly a hobby at the start. And now it's, you know, more full time. I, mean, I work, you know, maybe 80 hours a week at this point. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's near a full-time thing, but it's, you know, less than half of my overall time probably. Um, the third thing I've been doing and really is where my intellectual passion lies is what I call social futurism. And so um, what, what I'm trying to do with social futurism is by studying technology of today, studying um, history and the past, studying society, studying a lot of things, frankly, very, very disparate. Um, trying to come up with with visions for tomorrow, um, you know what, how how should our democratic system be realigned? Um, how should uh, wealth be distributed? How should society be organized? Um, how should interpersonal relationships be structured? Um, those sorts of things. And uh, someone mentioned to me just offhand that um, the the postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault who um, was doing slightly different things, but had a similar zeitgeist, zeitgeist. His, his belief was he had to go out and experience all of the world, that mm-hmm. he couldn't, as an academic from an ivory tower, um, you know, solve the big, big problems of, of humanity. He needed to experience um, the world and experience life. And so you mentioned North Korea, and that's part of, you know, maybe now the five-year journey I've had of of sort of no boundaries of, um, you know, not just in travel, but sort of uh, different, you know, different choices I make and how I'm living my life of wanting to, you know, meet as many different people and cultures as, as possible to do as many different things as possible. So I have sort of as, as much as, as is able, um, have a, ha- have a more experiential understanding of, of people's um, lives and plight and, um, yeah, going to North Korea was just part of that was wanting to, to just sort of see for myself, um, you know, albeit the, the sort of, uh, government curated version, um, because, you know, I'm not able to wander on my own. I was, I was always accompanied by, um, a political attache. Um, but I, I just wanted, you know, I wanted to be there, you know, um, I've, I've traveled a, a bunch, um, you know, with going to see um, refugees in Germany, um, going to Ferguson, Missouri, sort of at the height of all of the um, things that were happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tried to get to uh, the Ukraine to sort of get near the the front lines of um, things when it was really hot with uh, Russia and and the Ukrainians. That didn't work out for a few different reasons, but um, w- one part of this sort of experiential process is travel and is going, going to places and cultures and environments that are sort of, you know, more at the extremes or certainly very different from my comfortable, wealthy, suburban, um, life. Do you, do you feel when you go to places like that, that you are going to, um, that, that you're getting a sneak peek of different futures as disturbing as they may be? Hmm. Um, that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I haven't looked at it that way. And I'd want to think about that. It's, it's more, um, you know, if, if I'm saying, look, society should be organized a certain way, I, I, I want to have some, some empathy and understanding of the different people in the society. And so, um, you know, inserting myself into, in, into situations with people who are very different from myself, but also when they're engaged in, uh, or, or any people, um, not just the people who are different than myself, but when people in general are, are faced with more extreme situations, things that aren't as everyday um, to to just sort of have more of an understanding of what those dynamics are like. Well, let me be a little more concrete in my, my question. You went to Ferguson, right? 
Yeah. And uh, you, you were there pretty much when things were really happening in terms of uh, rioting and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I went. I, I basically went on the day that the verdict was supposed to come out. It ended up coming out like three days later. Um, okay. But uh, you know, it was yeah. You know, so how did that change your way of looking at the world, and and specifically, how does it change you as a designer? Yeah, um, I mean, in in terms of looking at the world, it 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 made things a lot more concrete. So. Um, walking, you know, walking the street, there's this, it's this big, uh, long main street where the, the rioting was happening, where the businesses were, were being looted, um, and, and seeing it in, in here, you know, in, in the United States, just outside of St. Louis, a a major city. Um, it it was just, it was eye opening. Um, you know, a, a gas station that was completely trashed and unusable, a variety of, of places. You know, I met a fellow named David Royal. He was trying to start the Center for Hope and Peace um, out of a Ponderosa that had been demolished. I mean, not demolished, but the windows had all been broken. You know, people had looted the inside and he was trying to sort of resurrect this Ponderosa that was was covered in spray paint and was mm. a ruin to be something called the Center for for Hope and Peace. And that was a nascent effort. It didn't end up working out, but I got to spend some time with David and and just hear from him, you know, why he was doing what he was doing and, and what the situation was like from, from his perspective. And it's, I don't even want to categorize it as changing me as a designer. I mean, it just, it just changes you as a person because you're, you're getting a more 360 perspective on, on what's going on. And, um, it's, it's humbling and it, it definitely, you know, one thing I've talked about for a long time and as I think, everyone should have sort of mandatory world travel um, as they sort of come come of age. You know, don't go straight to college, mm-hmm. take a year and, and do something overseas, depending on your personality and temperament. That might be military service. It might be Peace Corps service. It might be something different. Um, but I, I think the more that we see of the world and that we see of other people, the more that our perspective is is softened and the the empathy and understanding that we, we have for them uh, shift us to a more a more liberal perspective, um, a, a sort of a, a more holistically good perspective. And you know, all all of my journeys, um, you know, Ferguson among them, have just made me feel um, have made me feel humble and have made me feel um, really admiring of a lot of different, very disparate people who, um, you know, I, I may in the past have just quickly stereotyped or not thought about too closely, um, and and just sort of you know further further cements the fact that we're, you know, it's, it's, it goes back to the old uh, John F. Kennedy speech where he says, look, you know, about the Soviets, he's saying, look, you know, we all, we all love our children. We all, we all cherish our children's futures. Um, we are, we are all so similar at the end of the day. And it's, mm-hmm. it's understanding like, what's the, what are the translation paths between a lot of different people, different cultures who ultimately at the core are extremely similar to sort of, to bring us together in, um, you know, in, in a way that is, is more productive and harmonious. You know, I'm going to try to take what I heard you say and, and maybe restate it with uh, my own thoughts mixed in. So, uh, you know, feel, feel free to, to challenge what I'm going to say. But what, what I think you're, those experiences at places like uh, like Ferguson and, and North Korea have done for you is, you know, they probably have challenged the, the combination of either arrogance or ignorance that a lot of us in the design world have. I mean, we're, we're not that diverse. We don't, we don't really challenge ourselves. Certainly in this country, a lot of Americans are really happy to live in 
pockets of people just like themselves. And, uh, and as a profession, we're kind of there too. Uh, so you probably changed your understanding of the realities that you need to design for. And, um, and that's really exciting. I really admire that. Um, the other thing I was going to say was you maybe, uh, unlike a lot of people I talk to, see large systems like governments and maybe even societies as, as design material in and of themselves that have you know, aspects or qualities just like a, an architect might see a certain type of wood or a, a certain type of, um, of metal. I love that metaphor. I don't know if you would agree with it, but that, you know, these are, if not materials, they are settings for us to actually apply what we know in. Yeah, definitely so. And, you know, my, I, I've always been um, very uh, sort of, sort of cross-disciplinary. Um, you know, I, I like to tell people that I'm um, endlessly curious, but immediately bored. And so that, that dynamic has just led me to learn, um, a fair bit about a lot of things because I tend to take deep dives for a period of time and then jump to something, something totally different. And so I'm the, the problem sets that, that interest me to solve are the ones that are more at the paradigmatic level that are crossing many, you know, many, many different contexts. Um, before, you know, before I sort of self-identified as a social futurist back in 2010, I, I, I felt like the future of design as um, technology and artificial intelligence and things continue to evolve the future of design in terms of human participation in it would be in a deep understanding of, of people in, in going much farther than, than, you know, where designers currently are at in, in their sort of human factors, um, considerations, so to speak. And so I started really, um, getting into sociology, psychology, um, neuroscience, endocrinology, um, to really grok, like, how how it is we function from from a scientific or, or social scientific level, um, and uh, you know I've I've been I've been working that for for a long time, and I think I think it's in it's in us as as animals as creatures is understanding that that the future of all design, not just the thing that I'm doing, um, are are going to live because the um, I, I jump tracks on topics somehow I'm not sure, but I mean the machines are. The machines are going to do the the more hands-on stuff. Um, I don't know if you know you are familiar or not, Lou, but just last year, there there was an AI that was taught to paint like Rembrandt, and mm -hmm. that AI um, went out and and created a brand new Rembrandt-esque painting of totally original composition, um, completely on its own. So, a subject, a portrait that had never been done, and it looks just like Rembrandt did it. I mean, it's it's an incredible piece of art and that was you know that was done by a computer and I think it's a I think it's sort of a good example of um, I think it's sort of a good example of how how design and, and the actual movement and creationary aspects are, are going to be to be co-opted and um, I, you know the, just I, I, I can't stress enough like the the understanding of people the getting into the different sciences that relate to how the human animal functions I think is how um, human designers are going to stay stay a step ahead um, for, for some time. Well, Dirk, I, I think, you know, it might be fair to say that from your perspective, design is social futurism is design. And if it's not for the people listening, then you might find yourselves kind of wondering what happened to design. You have to kind of connect it to the, to the, the, the way the future 
will work for people. And I think that's what you're talking about here. And I look forward to hearing uh, what odd places, both physical and, and otherwise, you find yourself in as you keep plumbing that future. Dirk is a co-founder of Involution Studios, goinvo.com, and many other things, but uh, we'll leave it at that. Thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Lou. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dirk. Thank you.